Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I'm joined by Joss Walden, a health psychology MSc student and mental health campaigner who works as a beat ambassador and course facilitator at Taste Life UK. Joss has her own journey and experience of anorexia nervosa, emotional eating and anxiety. Joss is here today to share her journey of inpatient, weight restoration and continuing recovery through the hardest days. Hello Joss. Hello. Thanks very much for having me there. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I mean, I say this all the time on the podcast. I r- realise for listeners, it's going to be like, oh, here she goes off again. I feel like we've been planning this for so long. We really have. <laughs> I think we've uh, yeah. cancelled it about three times because of things that have come up, haven't they, in the pandemic. Yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> and we're both responsible for those counselling. So it's not like, not like either of us can be blamed. Life got in the way and that's perfectly fine. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really interested to hear about your experience and kind of the work that you're doing now as well. I just wondered, I think it'd be nice to start with if you could maybe share what your personal experience has been. Yeah, sure. And I, I always struggle with knowing how to start this story because <laughs> when I ever come to sit and kind of think about my ideas about it, I realise how just messy my journey has been. Mm-hmm. So I think when I was a child, uh, I always always had like emotional eating tendencies from a young age. I used to hoard food and eat at night eat and um, kind of comfort eat and just deal with kind of social anxieties with food. But then into my teens, I started to just uh, feel a bit different in my body. I, I started noticing that I didn't look the same as some of my peers girlmates were quite like tall and I thought they were beautiful and skinny and blonde and I was kind of like the class clown and uh, I always perceived myself as being a little bit bigger I was known as the foodie one in the group yeah so I just kind of always felt a bit of an outcast in relation to everyone else I also went through a million different styles to always try and change my appearance from being really preppy from being really emo like jet black hair and big (laughs) makeup I was always trying to fit into a different mold And then when I started with my GCSEs, I just got ridiculously stressed and decided to try and um, perfect everything from my grades to my handwriting to my appearance. And that's where the dieting kicked in. So actually, if I can try and control how I look through my food uh, and my exercise, then maybe actually I'll feel a little bit more in control of where my life is heading. And obviously at that age as well, it's quite a lot going on for you. You're thinking about your A-levels and your relationships with with friends and boys is changing and a lot goes on and I just don't really think I was ready for any of it and so it was a way to really numb those quite heightened anxiety feelings Mm. and over that summer after GCSEs and results came in my weight just spiraled my habits got really bad um I started just restricting, restricting, restricting more and more. And back then we didn't have social media because it's like 2008, I'm a 90s girl. And uh, I was just reading magazine after magazine um, and cutting out, you know, any diets or anything and trying to follow them. And that was when size zero was really big as well. So I was getting really dragged into like the Olsen twins and things like that and Mm -hmm. trying and seeing all these, these girls and what I thought I needed to look like in order to fit in and so I just kind of, it just spiraled that summer. And I remember my, uh, I've got two older brothers and one of them came home from uni and was just like, where's Joss gone? Like, she's not, like, she's not who she is. Like, she's a skeleton of herself. And mum and dad kind of just brushed it off and I was just snap out of it kind of thing. But it didn't get better as, as you can imagine. And uh, that September when I was about to start my A-levels, that's when I got dragged to the GP uh, by my mum and got my diagnosis. 
by then I I wasn't really aware of what anorexia was and I think I'd done some googling over the summer because I was getting worried about myself like I was I was realizing that I couldn't change my eating habits even if I wanted to like I was just noticing this new new kind of fear around food this new anxiety that even if I wanted to try and go back to an old pattern of eating I just there was something different something that was stopping me and I Mm. couldn't put my finger on it and so it, it wasn't a complete surprise to me when I got the diagnosis. I think it was a complete surprise to my mom. <laughs> and um, from there, it just became this real bumpy six year ride, really, of, of different inpatient unit stays and trying to teach myself my A-levels from hospitals. Um, I tried to go to university and do my, my undergrad and had to drop out because I was still very sick and got put back in another hospital. So it's been a real kind of like whirlwind um, of, of relapses and hospital admissions and uh, navigating it up until the age of about uh, 18, 19. And that's when the kind of light bulb moment hit, I'd say. And I just um, was in an adult ward and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. It's like something's got to give. And yeah, from, from then on, I kind of made advances to, to get better, but it definitely wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so that was kind of a, a, kind a of whistle stop yeah. tour yeah and before yeah. we because I want to talk to you about your inpatient journey but I have a few questions kind of before we go on to that and I really liked the fact that you said at the start when you started explaining that like you know you wanted it to be a clear sort of step by step of how it developed but it's messy and I think in a way that kind of sums up anorexia is everyone wants everything to be perfect it's not it's a mess but with the kind of disorder comes that perfectionistic nature and a question I had for you which kind of it really interested me when you were saying it was um you know we didn't have social you didn't have social media you had magazines and stuff and it's interesting because I always think now like social media has quite a big part to play because of that comparison but I think magazines and stuff were the social media of that time so do you think one was kind of worse than the other or do you think equally both of them had quite a big effect or could have a big effect oh do you know what that's a really difficult thing to say and a really good observation I never thought of it that way that actually our magazines were just our social media of the Mm -hmm. day and I guess as like the the magazines we had were really brutal they always picked apart women's bodies and so you were almost kind of seeing this image and you were given the narrative that that is wrong and which Mm. didn't really help in kind of forming your body image perceptions yourself as a as a young teenage girl but I guess you still get the same kind of thing on Instagram these days you're in like comparison real basically every day isn't it of endless streams of people so and you just got the like button as well. If you know, you can mm. see how many people like it, where the comments are on it, and um, it's it's difficult to say which one is worse. I guess I felt I was more in control over the magazines. I could stop buying yeah. the magazines, but yeah. on social media, if I don't have social media, I feel very disconnected from my friends, <laughs> and yeah. um, I feel that's a more difficult. That's almost like a habit and an addiction in itself. Whereas I think buying magazines, I could just yeah, like I said could just stop that um so it's, yeah it's just very different and I I am actually very glad that I'm not recovering from an eating disorder in this age at the moment with TikTok and everything I just think I would I don't know what that would do for when I was very yeah. sick I don't think it would have played out well I think the thing I think about social media as well is kind of in the magazines you can sort of separate yourself because well I used to think anyway like they're celebrities I don't think that you have that rationale but now I can look at and say they're celebrities you know it's airbrushed they've got a team that's making them look that way you don't but that's why social media is so difficult because it's literally people you know that have body types that maybe are glorified and they seem real they're not because they might be edited I mean they may they may be real but you know it's it's more real because it's actually people you know rather than it being celebrities that are kind of unreachable if that makes sense yeah and also it's the volume because also like yeah naturally social comparisons happen if we didn't have magazines or social media we would still compare to our social circles they become our form of referencing but now we're 
like we've got literally thousands and thousands of social references and and comparisons at our fingertips and that's not what we're designed for our brains are not designed Mm. to hold that amount that volume of comparisons that's just not healthy um so I think like anything it's the self-awareness thing you have to be self-aware to know when to stop buying the magazines and be like this is triggering me and again with social media you have to just take responsibility for the environment you're creating online and the stuff that you're seeing yeah absolutely and the other kind of thing that I wanted to pick up from what you said was you said about when you kind of lost a lot of weight and your brother came home and said you know where's Joss gone it kind of sounds like in that moment you you kind of didn't want to be I mean and correct me if I'm wrong it kind of sounds like you didn't want to have an eating disorder anymore but you kind of couldn't stop it you felt like you were trapped in those behaviors so do you think like what how did it start for you was it a choice that you made like I want to lose weight or was it like a coping mechanism or I don't know I'm just quite interested as like sounds like you got a bit trapped and couldn't get out for sure. And this is, again, the mess of eating disorders, because <laughs> it did start as uh, December 2007, me and my mom being like, we're going to go on a New Year's diet. So there's somewhere along the line, my mom was kind of being like, you might be a bit curvy. Let's both go on a diet in the new year. It, it started out as a diet. And I hate the fact that this sounds my story sounds like a diet gone wrong, which is exactly what an eating disorder is not. The difference is, while most people have gone on a diet, a crash diet, maybe until summer, I couldn't because I have other issues that I've always been using food to cope with. And so little did I know my dieting was actually helping me with other things. And once I started getting recognition for losing weight, validation, some kind of like attention from boys, uh, attention from family members, I've always felt a bit invisible in my family. I've got quite high achieving brothers and quite musically talented brothers and things. So I always felt a bit invisible. As soon as I started getting some validation it just became more functional for me. That again, sounds like it's a very attention seeking thing. Um, It was only until I got into my first inpatient hospital and I sat with a CBT therapist and she said to me, have you ever experienced any trauma in your life? And I broke down in tears. And that's when I actually found the root cause of my eating disorder was uh, about six years of childhood sexual abuse, which um, now studying psychology, so many years I realized that your brain blocks out and as a protective mechanism to be like we're not going there like you're Mm -hmm. not seeing that but I can only remember tiny tiny little things and I knew as soon as she said that I just broke down and from there on my healing began Um, and that's when the real the real work kicked in because I then knew what the eating disorder was was helping me numb and I could piece back the body image issues. I could piece back the invisibility issues, the abandonment issues, all these little things. And it's work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> but that was kind of the crux of it. So it, it did start out as a diet. But the issue with food and changing my, my body image and everything really was just completely entwined in this um, bigger kind of complex mesh <laughs> of things going on. Yeah. And I have a question, uh, maybe a controversial question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you think that, and I just kind of want your opinion, in recovery, we need to understand what the root cause was? Or do you think we can recover without knowing necessarily what the trigger was or what we're trying to sort of cover up? Yeah. So I think, again, it's hugely individual. I've never had to talk about what happened. That's never been something that I've wanted to do. I've always dealt with the aftermath of it. So Mm -hmm. the things that have come out of that experience. So I don't necessarily think if you've gone something through that's very traumatic, maybe like bullying or maybe even even a parental divorce can be really, really traumatizing for someone. Like you don't necessarily have to go back and talk about that and work through it. But I think it is worth, looking at the aftermath of that and how that's then played into your self-identity your self-worth and your self-esteem because they're all the things that an eating disorder disorder help with like um you know I've never met one person with an eating disorder who doesn't have low self-esteem in some form I think self-esteem is a very variable thing you can have it very high in some areas and very low in others um but I, I think you know an eating disorder is a coping mechanism and and somewhere along the way 
no matter how big or little that trigger is, acknowledging it's there and uh, can really help you not relapse <laughs> because you can just understand your behaviors. You can just say, okay, I notice that I want to, to diet or I'm thinking that I should uh, restrict again what's going on in my life and I can be like okay my stress levels are super high and I'm starting studying again so yeah. you know perfectionism is going to be a trigger for me and you can put things in place that keep you safe and I think that's um a real act of self-love yeah I think that's I think it can be really helpful but no I don't think necessarily you know going all Freudian you don't have to go back to looking at all your childhood experiences and some real in-depth you know I don't think that's always helpful some people might find it helpful other people it might just be really really difficult and really triggering for um so exactly like finding what works for you is part of the journey and I think it's part of why recovery takes so long it's because there's no one size fits all and a lot of it is is kind of seeing what does work for you and and um what you do need to look at and I'm always finding things I need to work on always um (laughs) just when I think I'm okay I might you know I get into a relationship or something I'm like oh that's triggered me I need to have a little look at that again and you know that's just life so yeah yeah and I'm thank you for articulating that so well I think you did a beautiful job of you know it is individual for everyone one what worked for you what worked for me what worked for anybody won't necessarily work for somebody but I think you're so right in every day is a learning curve and every day you're learning about what might trigger you And I think being able to, like you said, work on coping mechanisms that helps you to manage that situation. That's what recovery, that's how I see recovery. It might not be the same for everyone, but I see it as something might pop up. But whereas before I'd have turned to unhealthy behaviors, now I've got like more positive things that I can turn to quickly. So like you say, you don't then relapse and talking of relapse I want to talk about your inpatient experience kind of as much detail as you want to go into so I guess without I suppose going into too many details that you know might be triggering for people listening for sure what what was that like to be honest it's, it's really hard to compare I was when I I was thinking about this and I went I was in three different hospitals wow. one was NHS one was private uh, and one was adult ward so I literally wow. had that's very yeah. diverse and I have to say the first experience although I remember feeling so like a nervous wreck when they told me I had to go in and all those eating disorder comparative behaviors and I'm not going to be sick enough mm-hmm. uh, and things like this really just warped my mind I didn't want to go um, it was probably the best hospital I went to they got it so right um, in terms of it wasn't an easy program to follow it never is um, but they just had such a wonderful range of activities to get involved in they had like a games room with pool tables they had an art room I learned how to paint they had a, a gym and a, a an activity kind of center where you could like when you got to a certain BMI you could do basketball and things they took you on photography trips and their team just emitted love and they just had such a belief that everyone who walked through those doors would recover um I think my parents would tell you a very different experience of that hospital admission <laughs> I'm sure there were it was recovering is distressing and so I think there were a lot of a lot of lows but to be honest each of the three hospitals follow the same sort of structure so for anyone who might be listening who is wondering whether they need to go in um, or is, is might have uh, been wondering if inpatient treatment would suit them it's a very structured uh, care so you normally have a routine around meals and snacks which is uh, non-negotiable that's all done individually with a dietitian and you mm-hmm. plan your you like select your meals like from a menu the night before so everything's pre-selected and you kind of you you might be weighed every day or maybe once a week and your plan will match your weight gain target. They'll have a, a range of individual therapies, group therapies. Um, and then if you're of school age, so the first hospital, it was up to 16 years old. So I couldn't do my A-levels. I had to drop out. But the second hospital allowed me to my A-levels. So depending on the hospital you're in, you might be able to study, do your, your school. And they had like uh, 
kind of communal areas and, and once a week your parents could come and visit and things like that so it's very structured around kind of like group therapies and activities and things and then the evening there's normally something a bit more communal like a pamper session or a, a movie night and and then obviously the, the goal is that you kind of work up to a certain BMI and as you kind of get a bit more confident with your eating you're on communal tables and then the kind of we had a traffic light system of like uh, red, amber, green. So red, you need the most support and um, people would literally be sitting with you and you'd have a set time to finish your meal or snack. Mm. And if you didn't finish it in that time, that would be replaced by a 40 sip drink, which is like a calorie drink. And they would, um, staff would really check that you weren't engaging in behaviours. And there's a real communal pressure sitting with people. No one wants to be that person who's like, I'm not eating. Or, you know, and even if someone's really struggling, you find that the group will support them or there's kind of enough people there that if you team up with a few other girls or guys, you can kind of be like, we're going to normalise this and let's just chat about, you know, the weather or like Love Island yeah. or I don't know, anything. And you can kind of work as a team to get through the meals. And then you normally find that as you progress through the tables, there's less and less support. And then you kind of show yourself that you can be self-sufficient and kind of get your own meals. And they had like occupational therapy things where you could go on trips out and learn how to have a meal out which might sound bizarre to anyone listening who doesn't have an eating disorder but it's literally like learning how to like feed yourself again um, and manage the anxiety about you know eating out with all the range of choices and things so that hospital was amazing the first one for really just doing all the steps and sadly when I came out of that hospital my outpatient team were just not there and I was left for the whole summer so about three four months when I came out with just no support and I tried to make it work so much I remember being on the floor in my bedroom crying to my mum saying I can't make it stop I don't want to slip I just can't I don't know what to do and by September time when outpatients had finally come back from their holidays um, I, I, I relapsed and went back into another hospital again so they're all very very different I found the big difference really and the light bulb moment for me, I think I said before, was going into the adult patient ward. Adolescent wards have this real optimism about them. Like you're young, you've got a future ahead of you, there's things you can do. Adult ward was a completely different ball game. I was very, this was, I was actually at my worst in, in the adult ward and I, I had to be ND tube fed. I, I wasn't, I wasn't well at all. And I really struggled with that admission and I struggled more so with the fact that the people around me the group dynamic was so different and it was a real eye-opener to me that actually if I didn't get better this was what my life was going to be it was just going to go in and out of kind of supported living and hospitals so it was a blessing and a curse to be in that place it was a really tough admission to get through I think I actually I don't remember much of it but I I I did discharge early, but I worked with my team to discharge early. I was very adamant. I said, I don't like it in here, but I don't want to leave too early because otherwise, you know, I'll end up back. So what can we do that will help me? Because I wasn't doing very well and they really supported me. And so very team dependent, but there was definitely a big jump from adolescent wards to adult wards, which was noticeable in care and in group dynamic. It sounds like you went from what maybe is your reflection on it now and maybe not what necessary it was at the time, but it sounds like you went from quite a happy, fun environment to a lost hope. Mm. It almost sounds like what you're saying. Oh, definitely. And I think, to be honest, there was an extra layer of that because after the second the second adolescent ward I was in, I was in such a good place because I was going to university to do what I thought was my dream dream job of being a pediatric nurse and I was so excited to go from getting to Leeds in the first few months realizing that I was weighing over my head um the girls I was living with I didn't really feel I got on with very much and I I was so far from home up in Leeds and I couldn't do night shifts I didn't want to do night shifts I hadn't comprehended that before about being a nurse I'm such a routine person around sleep and mm-hmm. stuff so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in too deep. And um, my, my dad actually rang me during one of my seminars and said, oh, me and Mike, my brother are going to come and pick you up because we just can't watch you deteriorating so far from home. So you're, you're going to come back. And and I think that was hit, I hit rock bottom. I remember being, they came and picked me up that night and I remember being in a travel lodge hotel and just being like, 
what now because that's what I was working towards that was like yeah. my vision and my goal and now I have nothing and I have nothing again because of anorexia got in the way and it it, it did feel hope helpless I I, I felt yeah. very low I felt I it was rock bottom yeah so what did you do to pick yourself up because I mean and I also kind of want to ask that in conjunction with the first inpatient experience you had because from the way that you've described it it sounds happy but I can imagine that recovering from an eating disorder when you're in an inpatient ward is really really horrifically difficult so kind of you know if someone's listening and they're like well it sounds like she did it and did it easily like I'm sure that wasn't the case it wasn't the case at all and I've got, I've got I journal a lot and I think I over those few years I wrote about six different journals just wow. full of my I, I have to say journaling gets you through it because it's just a great outlet in the hospitals having a good support network having good friends in there really sussing out who are the ones who want to get better from who are the ones who are going to drag you down mm. um, that's important and again take self-awareness you've got to know you've got to be able to set your boundaries and be like okay this person's not having a great week of it I'm not going to have to, I'm not going to go near them right now having a good nurse team even if it's just one nurse that you can get on with who mm. can kind of be your buddy when you're in there and you know can always be like a maternal figure mm. I definitely had that and I got really into cross-stitch and art as my outlets. And so actually, when you said what picked you up in the, the final admission, through all three, I was big on making vision boards. And I would use my vision board as a placemat. So mm-hmm. if I was on home leave, because um, I didn't mention, but you do get time at home um, mm-hmm. when you're in an inpatient. If you're doing well, you get to do a weekend leave or maybe a bit longer if you're you know you can prove to them that you're going to follow your meal plan so I used to make these vision boards and I would cut out pictures of anything from traveling to graduating to even pictures of people out partying and drinking alcohol anything that I wanted to achieve in life uh, without my eating disorder was on those boards and they were big they were like um, big A3 ones and um, so I I had them in my room Uh, in the final hospital I was in I made a vision book because they had nothing in that hospital to do there was like literally one lounge in your bedroom and there was nothing to do um so a lot of people just watch daytime tv all day and I was like I can't have that so I got my parents to bring up my kind of like art box my scrapbooking box and I just made these vision books and it had things in it like I would um I would write things about a lot of traveling things I love to travel but um (laughs) even stuff about wanting to have children and I used to write lots of little poems they weren't very good poems a bit crappy but anything that would kind of just get me in touch with something bigger than myself something actually that you can do all those things with an eating disorder but it's not going to be the same experience and I don't want to settle for the quasi recovery experience of that I want to have the full experience of being you know just going traveling and then just going to uni that's what I want so I think making those vision books and having the journals and the vision placemats just kept me my eyes up yeah kept me focused on things and then of course there's other you know having your your friends and stuff at home who can come around you when you're back from a weekend leave or uh, anything like that just a little sense of normality things that just aren't related to your eating disorder I think the, the more you stay in an eating disorder world and you're I know that's probably a little bit difficult now and I think if I was ill now on social media I would be scrolling through other people's accounts and Mm -hmm. I just think no like you've got to stay in your lane just like no one else's recovery is your business your recovery is your business and Mm -hmm. no one else cares what happens in your life other than you so um, I I think it was doing things that helped me stay in my own lane Um, and then just learning you know when an anorexia knocks you down because it does just pick yourself up again and you realize that the next time you, you try you'll be stronger you'll, yeah. you'll you'll just be able to do it better you'll you'll be one step ahead absolutely I think two things I completely agree with that you've just said are one put yourself first mm-hmm. I think that is really really difficult in eating disorder recovery because often people with an eating disorder are people pleasers and we do things for other people and that's because we don't love ourselves as much as we should so absolutely learning that you are number one like you said no one else no one else is going to be bothered what you I mean maybe your loved ones but ultimately you're the one that's going to be there forever and the second thing I really liked what you said was rather than having one goal 
having lots of different goals you know you said about traveling about uni just small things like going to parties I think that's so important because like you said if one thing falls through that might be a really difficult thing kind of to go through whilst you're trying to recover as well but if you've got lots of different things like you know the world is your oyster basically there I guess my next question was, you know, you said about the outpatient team not really being there to support you during your relapse. And there's been some research, um, in particular, the DAISY study, which has looked at kind of inpatient versus daycare or having like a stepped approach. So a shorter inpatient stay and then going on to the daycare. And I think that's shown quite good outcomes of reduced cost increased acceptability like parents being able to be involved and like you said like it kind of keeps you in the normal world rather than just the eating disorder world so what do you think about that do you think that would have been useful for you or yes and no (laughs) so again when it goes back to the individual I think it absolutely will work for many people I think uh it depends how severe you are I think there was definitely um I tried to do day patient uh before going into the adult ward and it just didn't work for me I also was uh, the other girls and they kind of badly bullied me they kind of teamed up against me which wasn't very fun so I think my experience with day patient I'm always a bit biased with because I'm always a bit like oh I don't really like day patients just because I didn't have a great experience I think there is value in long inpatient stays as well and I understand that they're costly I think that for some people, it also does give the parents a respite. I think uh, I was even in a peer support group the other day and eating disorders are brutal at their worst. They can be violent, they can be aggressive, they can be manipulative. And I think they impact the whole family. And I think sometimes long inpatient stage, if you've got a, a son or a daughter who is really, really sick, it can be a real blessing because it, it means they're intensely looked after and, you know, some people at their worst have to have people with them 24 hours a day sitting outside their bathroom sitting outside their bedroom doors and absolutely should they not be going into day patient care that it's not the right approach but then you get other people who maybe are more mild on the on the mm-hmm. on the behaviors on the severity spectrum it doesn't mean they don't have an eating disorder and it's not horrifically influencing their life it just means that they probably don't need to be in such a secure unit like they could do a short stint in there to get them on track but then do this more phase approach where they're being pushed into independence a bit more quickly with still their parents being around and then you'll have other people who don't even need to go into inpatients or day patients because actually they're really rapidly able pick themselves up and um, implement change and that is fantastic and in the grand scheme of things we'd love everyone to be in that category <laughs> um, that would be the best for cost effectiveness and um, if you know in a perfect world if we could have all the range of therapeutic approaches on the NHF so you know if we could have this I could, I'll do art therapy one day and CBT another that would be amazing wouldn't it but it's just not realistic so I think the daisy thing is interesting and I think it will definitely work for a subgroup of people it, it's not it's not going to be a one size fits all is it it's no. there's always going to be other people who need a more secure and a more intensive approach and I think the best thing that healthcare providers can be is fluid and flexible in their treatment mm-hmm. plans so it's been like we're, we've got this plan and we're sticking to it rigidly it's noticing from the earliest point when a plan isn't working and when things are getting worse or when things are getting better and actually they're exceeding your expectations and they they don't want to be there and they they can go out it's knowing how to um respond to those because I, I think that's where a lot of slippage happens is actually people are just not people are being left to fall through cracks or being you know you just need to stick to the plan and be too rigid and so yeah that's my kind of I don't know if that's answered your question but no that's it has kind of... I agree pretty much with everything that you said I think you're so right in that nobody is the same everybody requires a different approach and like you said some people will be in a medically unstable position and they need to be on an inpatient ward but that's not necessarily going to be everybody but I think having the sort of stepped approach of inpatient daycare outpatient it allows people to gradually you know if someone isn't an impatient like yourself then they can gradually you know go into daycare then go into outpatient and learn gradually how to deal with normal life rather than being thrown from 
being an inpatient and being you know sitting and having your meals and have someone sit with you to then having like one therapy session a week um I think that can often be quite a big jump but I you know I completely agree and like you said with the different types of therapies like you know CBT might work for some people it also might not work for others and just like every single person that experiences an eating disorder is different that that means that the treatment that they're going to need is also which I think you know that's why when we talk about services and stuff like that I just think it must be so difficult to offer the right support to somebody because especially in services like the NHS there are restrictions there's red tape and I'm pretty sure that every clinician you know sees a client and thinks I want to help them so much but I'm just stretched by my resources and I think that's the difficulty that we have is we know that everyone needs a different approach but unfortunately at the moment it's just not possible. Yeah absolutely and another thing that I wanted to talk to you was about your weight restoration and kind of how you progressed with that because I think a lot of people and maybe this is me kind of blanket statement so I'm just going to say from like anecdotal experience I've heard gaining the weight during anorexia recovery is really really hard there's no denying that but it's almost when people reach the sort of maintenance weight that is difficult and not just because of the eating disorder the thoughts that come up like you can stop trying now because you've got you've reached your weight but also the comments from other people like well you don't look sick anymore so you must be okay yeah how did you experience that and how did you sort of manage that yeah I guess I I think I did in a way because my eating disorder was a way to communicate that something wasn't wrong that I I had pain that I mm-hmm. I was suffering in some way internally and to look normal again to show people I was eating normal again was to show the world that I was okay that I was healed mm-hmm. and I think it's learning to have a voice and being able to say you know I'm still hurting or I actually still need therapy or I'm really struggling with xyz at the moment mm-hmm. And to not then use food or my body weight to communicate that. And that took time. And I, I, I definitely, I think with friends, it was the hardest because um, people just expected you to just be able to slot back in. And, and mm. I wanted to, and I wanted to, to go out and, and enjoy things again. And I, I really struggled and um, I always felt a bit different. I always felt a bit like I wasn't quite like them, even mm. though I wanted to be. So, yeah, I, I also had family members who were uh, just said some really horrible things. Who, yeah, who, who, who put me down. He said, uh, you know, Josh should snap out of it now. This has been going on too long enough. Or um, she needs to stop trying to look like Victoria Beckham and things like that. I had people in my family make those comments, which um, was really, really difficult because I was just mm-hmm. like, just not understanding that this is... Um, the seriousness of this and yeah. I think my brother Mike actually did say to those family members like you, you don't understand what <laughs> what our family's been through um because to anyone on the outside looking in it, it, it may have just looked like my parents had just kind of stopped <laughs> caring for me for a mm-hmm. bit but that's absolutely not what they've done complete opposite but yeah so I did I did experience those things it's really difficult actually again I think I just I cried a lot <laughs> I think I'm not gonna lie I think I, I a lot of tears a lot of trying to communicate to people that I wasn't okay and that actually it was really difficult having an anorexic head in a in a weight restored body and just learning I I remember writing letters when I couldn't vocalize things writing emails so if I if I felt that I was you know struggling with something but people weren't really taking it seriously I would I would just tell my mom or my dad and in a way that I I found easier so that was kind of one way of getting through it and then the body image thing just took time it took time and distraction just mm-hmm. you know I just kept busy I started doing things that I enjoyed doing so I started volunteering started working I used to work as a support worker for like disabled children and um, things like that and and the more I started just doing the youth work and things that I loved the more I was just around like-minded people and you know you start seeing other people modeling healthy behaviors with food because other people don't care or overthink what they're mm-hmm. eating and and that really helps as well so I think that just the distraction really yeah was, was key and I didn't really notice it 
it was more difficult when I was in an inpatient ward because you're being weighed all the time and and you're just associating everything you're eating with gaining weight and it's really difficult because you're just like well if you're giving me these foods to gain weight then surely when I've reached my goal weight I don't need to have cake anymore or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and actually then there's a massive I just think that when you reach a maintenance weight, that's when you really start recovery because that's when you start challenging all these messed up kind of distorted thoughts that you have and the habits that keep you quote unquote safe or in control. And that's when you start showing yourself that actually your eating disorder is just spewing you these lies. And actually, if you just get yourself back in the driving seat, everything's okay. But you really communicating to the people around you, your loved ones, if you've got a partner, even now with my partner, like I don't consider my eating disorder really affecting me in any way. But I will I will let him know if, if I think something's triggering me or if I'm a bit anxious about something in, in advance. And usually I say in advance and I get to the event or whatever it is and it's not a problem. And I'm like, oh, yeah, screw it, forget it. Like, um, but it's still having that ability to communicate, isn't it? Yeah, I'd probably use a bit of wine actually, but I don't know if I should promote <laughs> that. But I think a lot of wine was definitely drunk and, um, <laughs> in the latter stages. <laughs> I'm really interested what you said about like the foods that you kind of had to eat to put on weight and then they became your fear foods. I've never really thought about that, but I can really resonate with that. How did you deal with then them becoming foods that you were okay with? So I've always been a massive advocate for the traffic light system, which you might have already heard about before. So you put like your safe foods in the green column, you're kind of like, oh, I can eat them sometimes. And sometimes they're a bit, I'm a bit funny about them in the amber column. And then foods which are like, oh, gosh, they're a no, they really cause me quite a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. in your red column. And um, I just kind of kept bringing those red and amber foods into my week until I realized that my weight was stabilized and actually nothing bad was happening but that took time as well because you have to keep challenging them you can't just challenge them once like it for something to become a habit or become like normal and you're not trigger anxiety you need to do it quite a few times so it was making sure I was doing it regularly but also making sure I wasn't then compensating so mm-hmm. not turning into like oh I, I, I'm fine eating pasta if I've gone to the gym today like it, it it's, it's challenging that it's been like actually no I can have that on any day and that took time as well so it was a very phased approach a lot of self-compassion was needed because in my eyes if you're in your early stages of your journey and you're just starting challenging fear foods and the way you're coping with it is by going to the gym that is the stage of your journey you're at and you're not going to be there forever and there will be a stage when you then feel okay I'm now not going to have these foods on days when I've just gone to the gym and that will be the next stage of your journey. So it's having some self-compassion, knowing where you want to get to and the steps that you need to take to get there. I think the thing for me that really pushed me into into recovery only happened in the last few years and that's when I went traveling, solo traveling, because there were no gyms and it was just, you know, me traveling around and meeting people and drinking a lot and, you know, going out to eat at lots of tasty brunches and things and I felt like I came into my own skin I came into my own confidence no one I met knew about my history no one else you know there wasn't this kind of like thing that everyone was watching me and knew that oh Joss had anorexia it was just this kind of refreshing like I could literally be Joss who studies psychology and Joss who's interested in skydiving or Mm -hmm. you know the, the girl I wanted to be so that was really when I think my recovery was just like skyrocketed and that was only like 2019 that was really recently and I was all I I was recovered before then I would say but it's only in the last few years which really I would say pushed me into like into an actual state of now I can confidently say that nothing will trigger me back Mm -hmm. and that I'm very comfortable just kind of eating whatever doing whatever I don't go to the gym I actually cancel my gym membership the other month because I was just like I just don't use it and but that's okay and my weight hasn't changed I'm still eating cheese toasties and pizza and drinking wine and it's just a journey of showing yourself and I think I'm getting towards 30 and I don't really care much anymore (laughs) maybe maybe there's a bit of like growing up with it and a bit like Kate I'm a bit bored of this being Mm -hmm. being my narrative 
let's have a go at trying something new. I, I, I've got a now decade of experience telling me that nothing bad is going to happen, which is what the eating disorder always says. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, the world's going to cave in if you eat that chocolate cake. I now know that's not the case. Just building up that kind of bank of experience behind you, which says, do you know what? Even if you do overeat for the next month or so, lockdown or whatever, you're going to be fine. Like it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it, it definitely has taken taken time. It's so refreshing and lovely hearing all of that from you because I think to hear where you've come from and now where you're at is just, I'm sure for everybody listening, like I I can feel your positivity oozing through the screen. I wish people could see you right now because you're just so smiley and you're so positive. So I just like, I just want to say thank you for kind of just bringing in so much hope and so much excitement for the future for people and just sharing how it is a journey and like you said I think one thing that's so important is people have this idea of what recovery is and they expect it tomorrow and then they just start beating themselves up because it's tomorrow and their recovery hasn't arrived I think almost maybe people expect it to just happen but also they expect it to happen now But like you said, it's hard work. It doesn't just happen and it's stages. And, you know, if you if you go from one week of, you know, not being able to challenge yourself in anything and then the next week you've challenged yourself, even if it's something tiny, you've still that's still a step forward. So I think, like you said, it's just having that self-compassion to think I am doing this. You know, it's going to take time, but I'm doing, I'm being so brave and I'm doing it anyway. So, yeah, thank you so much for all the positivity you've brought. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. <laughs> so I've got two questions that I like to ask at the end of the podcast. Yeah, of so the first one is if someone's listening and I mean, you've given so many amazing tips and so much insight into eating disorder recovery but if they are listening and they're kind of wondering how to get out of their eating disorder what would be your top tip or your best advice for them to get out of your eating disorder oh my gosh that's a really difficult one (laughs) I would probably advise you find one at least one other person who you can confide in as an accountability partner someone that you're going to tell them everything that you're not going to lie to uh your eating disorder can't manipulate them that you Mm. know that you're just going to tell them everything that you've done that day and they can really hold you accountable to the little tiny steps you're going to make and and that's the other thing little tiny steps it really (laughs) is Uh, and the taste life uk course always goes on about this it's the baby steps you take each day it doesn't have to be, you know, eating a three-course meal now at your dinner. It can, it can just be like you're going to have a bit more milk in your tea or whatever it is that your your big mountain is that you need to um, overcome. Just putting those baby steps in place and having that accountability partner will really, will really help. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second question was... Obviously, it's great that we're having these conversations and sharing stories about eating disorders, but often the people that will be listening are the people that are already interested in raising awareness. So in in your opinion, where do you think we need to go next in order to kind of raise awareness in communities that aren't necessarily already learning about eating disorders? Yeah, I mean, there is there is so much amazing work that is being done yeah. and it always astounds me I, um is that a word I think I just made that word up <laughs> I think <laughs> you missed amazed. <laughs> you missed amazed and <laughs> astounded so I'm just making that <laughs> it is late <laughs> <laughs> but, um yeah so I think I'm always amazed at the amount that is out there so I think if we can have more kind of like youth things in schools, like youth track courses, which are like educating on eating disorders and equipping some good life skills Mm -hmm. in us with our emotional coping um, and even things about like safety now around like using social media and how to um, be critical about the media that we view. Um, So I think it starts young, doesn't it? I think we just need more education the younger we can get. And um, a lot of it as well comes down to funding if we could get better funding and and campaigns that are are focused on raising money so we can get 
better accessibility to to care and um, access yeah. to therapies and things like that um, that would be probably where we need to go I think so much is being done I see more and more documentaries every week on um, on on uh, channel four it was more on channel four wasn't it on BBC and things like that on TV so uh, I think we just need to keep on having those messages out there and for people to put their stories out there when they're ready um, and uh, not be afraid to say it from their perspective I, I i know that beat have recently recruited a lot more male beat ambassadors as well which is fantastic to see um because again they're such just a marginalized group within eating disorders and um i think just the more that we can get a diverse range of people coming forward to share their, their stories and and voice what they would have needed and to then campaign for that change will be where we need to go yeah Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Joss. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much, Hannah. I so enjoyed that conversation with Joss because I think she is such a positive individual and hearing the difficulties that she went through and now what she's doing and how well life is going. I just think that she has such a fantastic outlook on things. Next week, we'll be joined by Tom Robert. Tom has his own experience of anorexia, but he's also been diagnosed with autism and anxiety, amongst other mental health conditions. Tom does so much work for raising awareness, especially with male eating disorders, and his story, again, is another truly inspiring one. I remember it was a bit of a turning point for me when I was doing my job and and it was just to make sandwiches and I had to just cut them up and I couldn't think to how to cut a sandwich I couldn't think somebody showed us and then and then I, I couldn't do it I couldn't and I remember thinking myself, what the hell is going on I just couldn't do it it was the most bizarre thing ever I literally couldn't hold the bread at the same time as cut If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment, not only those struggling with eating disorders but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!